It's been about two months since care facilities across the state restricted visitors in an effort to protect our most vulnerable, our elderly and medically compromised seniors. We've been watching clusters break out across the country and how willing states have been to identify where positive cases are turning up. We talked to AARP Hawaii Director Kayla E. Lopez about the transparency issue. It sent a letter to the state last month expressing the need for public disclosure and for guidance for the hundreds of care homes under the state's jurisdiction as we look to how best to protect our kupuna. Well, we had in one of the facilities that there were three cases, uh, but they all, they, uh, you know, they recovered. So it's three cases in one facility, and I don't know the name of the facility. And one of the things that we're trying to get is uh, more transparency so that, you know, our understanding or awareness of these uh, cases can be known, uh, especially once, it's, once there's a, should there be a, a likely second wave so as things get eased up, the potential of cases occurring in your nursing homes and such are pretty high. No one wants to see a cluster like we saw on Maui or exactly. on the Big Island. And definitely not in a nursing home, for sure. I did see that it's really kind of a mixed bag because some states disclose you know, where the positive cases are and other states do not. And some states actually provide at least to the you know family members or on their website the information related to the nursing homes themselves so that you can know whether the nursing home your family member is in has had any cases whether it's a resident or employee but that's really important information to have if you if your loved one is in one of these homes exactly exactly it's critical for our purposes, one of the things that we're looking to for the governor, in the difference for Hawaii than perhaps some other locations, is that many of our Hawaii residents are in your smaller adult residential care homes. And these aren't regulated at the federal level, they're regulated at the state uh, level. So here in Hawaii, as an example, we have almost about enough beds for 8,400 people in those residential care, foster care homes compared to, say, maybe only 4,500 in your larger nursing homes. Nursing homes are federally regulated. So the concern is the degree to which the smaller residential care homes, they can have like maybe upwards of five people uh, in some of the smaller facilities, upwards of 12 in some of the bigger ones. So the concern really is the degree to which they're being given the kind of resources and guidance to make sure kupuna are being well cared for. Um, so that's pretty much one of the main things for us. And the concern is we haven't heard from the state what they're doing to address these issues. There was that flap about whether or not inspectors can come in wearing their shoes or wearing booties. So they had state inspectors visiting the residential care homes. And our concern was usually they're going from home to home. And if they're not wearing protective gear, they could uh, unintentionally cause an infection from one location to another. One of the things that the state did require is that these residential care homes now have to provide the protective, personal protective equipment to the inspectors when they arrive. And, you know, I think that's a good thing, but many of these smaller facilities have just a difficult time getting PPE for their use as many of us in our homes do. So they're not a high priority in getting those resources, although we did hear from the state 
very recently that they are um, working with the Hawaii um, Healthcare Association to provide uh, equipment, uh, PPE now, to these smaller residential operations. So we're talking masks, gowns? Masks, gowns, booties. The state is looking at uh, providing that through the uh, Hawaii Healthcare Association. So the smaller operations should be able to get those items through there. I think the other thing that we're looking to with the state is some states have already set up what they are prepared to set up strike forces. So say there is an outbreak in a particular area or nursing home, is that they're prepared to go in, figure out how to relocate um, those individuals and, you know, move them to a facility, those types of things. And so just trying to find out, you know, from our purposes, Hawaii's been very lucky in that we've had very few cases and no deaths that we're aware of. And at the same time, you know, we don't want to wait till there is a problem. And our issue is, you know, understanding proactively what is the state doing to prepare for that. Uh, the other is making sure people get tested frequently. These residential care home folks have challenges being able to get their members, uh, get their residents out to a facility to be tested. You know, maybe we need to have um, a mobile service that allows the state to be able to take the testing to these residential care homes and get people tested. And then the other issues reporting. You know, you and I talked about, you know, how many cases have there been uh, other than the three cases at one facility uh, where those folks recovered. We're not aware, and that's part of the concern. It's maybe things are going really well or maybe we just don't know about it. So that's kind of what we're looking at. So what kind of time frame are, are we approaching with the the Hawaii Healthcare Association providing the PPE to those care homes? You know, I suspect that, that they're probably already able to provide that. The degree to which the information has gotten out to these smaller facilities is the part that we're challenged with. One of the things that we're finding out from the state is that they have a hard time reaching out to a lot of these smaller or operations because they don't necessarily have, say, email or technology. So it's you know, it's kind of standard phone call or letters. And uh, that's been a little bit of a frustration because we're aware of some of those smaller operations not having gotten or received guidance. Uh, so as an example, Dr. Park sent out a letter in on March 25th to long-term care facility administrators. And it's unclear, or our understanding from talking to people, is these smaller operations did not get that letter and guidance. So we're going to try to help. I mean, I think the main thing on our part is we want to be part of the solution and not just raise the concern. Uh, so we're going to try to set up an opportunity for those smaller care homes to uh, perhaps have an opportunity to talk to the state and figure out how to find ways for um, there to be easier, quick access to information. I think if anything, Catherine, what we've seen is people having access to the Internet isn't is no longer optional. It's just as critical a service as telephone service is considered. You want to make sure that the Kapuna aren't really isolated uh, and that they can have some communication with their loved ones. Exactly, exactly. So being able to have virtual visits, having the resources available even at these smaller facilities for those types of things. I mean, I've, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who have the opportunity to use different technologies to, you know, even set up family calls where you're, they're all on a Zoom call uh, and talking story and being able to connect with one another. And that's, you know, that we're aware of that's not happening or not easily available. 
the main thing is how do we work at getting an effective response um, from the state and more importantly so that there's guidance to these smaller facilities so that they're able to take care of the kupuna that are their responsibility. And you're talking about the licensed care homes, but what about the unlicensed ones? Oh, that's a whole nother can of worms. You know, the degree to which information is out there on the Department of Health's website, letting people know what they should be doing for the licensed care homes is making that information readily available. And one would hope people got uh, those unlicensed care homes took the steps they need to, to become licensed. But that that information would be readily available to the public as well. And uh, we're not aware of any of that being made available at this time. Okay, but definitely more transparency and post information on the web so that if someone's got a loved one in one of these facilities, they just kind of know what the risk is. And again, just guidance. So a good example is transfers and discharges. We're aware of situations where a resident may have gone out to a doctor's appointment or at an emergency hospital visit and then had to come back, but the care home provider had no way of knowing whether that person had been in contact or contracted the COVID, uh, COVID-19 and didn't want to bring that person back into the home to potentially mm-hmm. infect other residents. So they had to set something up, you know, say somewhere else in their home. It's just even guidance or support to address those issues. You know, it's one of those things that we're finding out. This is new and everyone's learning, but it's unclear where and how this is being addressed. And I realize it's difficult. You've got about a, almost 1,600 of these smaller operations compared to 40 plus nursing homes. But, you know, the reality is they're out there. These homes are providing a valuable service to our kupuna and their and their family members. We just want to make sure they're getting the guidance and resources so that they can do what they need to do to keep them safe. That was Kelly E. Lopez, Hawaii Director of AARP, which lobbies for seniors. We asked the State Health Department about the numbers provided by AARP, and we're told that there was only one positive case at Halimakua on Maui, a patient who had been transferred from Maui Hospital where there had been a cluster which has now been resolved. ARP says it hopes to hear back from the state about their concerns about guidance by the end of this week. Time now to take a look around the globe as a number of coronavirus cases across the globe reaches 5 million, while officials report another large increase of unemployment claims across the U.S. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the coronavirus global update on Thursday the 21st of May. I'm Nick Miles. The number of cases worldwide passes 5 million. There has been another large increase in the number of people claiming unemployment benefit in the United States and how a Syrian migrant pushed for the UK government to change legislation to benefit migrant health workers. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases around the world has passed 5 million, almost five months after cases were known to have appeared in China. The milestone was recorded by Johns Hopkins University in the United States. Naomi Grimley reports. The number of infections worldwide doubled over the past month. America still has the highest number of cases. It accounts for almost a third of all recorded infections. That's five times the number of cases in Russia, the number two country on the prevalence list. And in Brazil, where President Jair Bolsonaro has mocked lockdown measures, they now have the third largest number of cases in the world. And in the United States, because of the extent of the coronavirus outbreak, 38 million people there have now lost their jobs, up 2.4 million in the past week. 
The latest figures from Russia say more than 300,000 people have tested positive, though the official death toll is low, just over 3,000. Oliver Carroll, a journalist in Moscow and who caught COVID-19, said the figures were suspect. There's an underreporting because the tests themselves are, are, are inaccurate. With, with my doctors, for example, they anecdotally reported maybe 10 or 20 percent accuracy of the tests. And the second is, is more sort of misreporting. I don't think we can talk about a sort of directive from the Kremlin here. There's a lot of discrepancy between Moscow and the regions. India has also shown a marked rise in cases, with more than 100,000 reported. One doctor who spoke out publicly about an alleged shortage of protective equipment has now been committed to a mental health institution. Dr Sudhaka Rao, an anaesthetist at a government hospital in Andhra Pradesh, was suspended last month after a television interview. Dr Rao's mother denied that he had mental health issues. There have been further warnings from the World Health Organization. Its special envoy on COVID-19, David Nabarro, says the virus has led to poverty levels in low-level income countries not seen in decades. What's remarkable is the speed with which people just experience extreme poverty when they're asked to reduce economic activities so as to limit the spread of the virus. I've heard of communities all over Asia as well as in Africa and Latin America, where that level of extreme hunger has built up fast. The British pharmaceuticals group AstraZeneca says it secured more than $1 billion from the United States to help fund production of its coronavirus vaccine. AstraZeneca is working with the University of Oxford to develop and distribute a vaccine being trailed in the United Kingdom. It comes amid concerns that the United States, which has the most cases and the most deaths in the world, could have a vaccine before other countries thanks to its large-scale funding of pharmaceuticals companies. AstraZeneca said it hoped to deliver the vaccine in September. The British Prime Minister has been pressurised into agreeing to exempt foreign national health service and care workers from paying a fee to access the health service if they came from outside the European economic area. A Syrian refugee, Hassan Akkad, who works as a hospital cleaner on a Covid war in London, produced a video that went viral about the $760 yearly fee. For me to pay that fee, I have to work for 10 days. We're doing these jobs despite the risk of it. So for us to be charged to access the very same institution or the same establishment, the NHS, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Mr Akkad had also recently helped force the government to extend a scheme to help the families of all healthcare workers who die from catching the virus at work. The head of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, said the Tokyo Games will be cancelled if it's not possible to hold them next year. Mr Bach said the committee could not employ thousands of organisers forever. It's a mammoth task and uh, there is no blueprint uh, for it. Uh, so we have uh, to uh, reinvent uh, the wheel day by day. So it's very challenging and at the same time it's uh, very fascinating. And there's been joy for open water swimmers here in England after restrictions were relaxed and more venues open up. We've come out of lockdown and we've come down to our favourite outdoor swimming destination. Let's do it, Lucy. Let's do it. <laughs> come on in. The water's lovely. Woo! That was at Dostill Quarry in England, where the water was a bracing 14 degrees Celsius. This is the coronavirus global update.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, addressing COVID-19 by deploying resources to help avoid its spread, protecting those in Hawaii who are considered vulnerable. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Hello, this is Yo-Yo Ma. The last few months have been deeply sad, challenging us in ways we could not have imagined. Now, I invite you to join me for music of beauty, strength, and consolation as I play Bach's six cello suites, a memorial for those we have lost, and a tribute to our resilience in a live performance from WGBH in Boston. Sunday morning at 9 on Sister Station HPR2. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we go back to sugar plantation days. During the late 1800s, rats were becoming a huge problem for Hawaii sugar producers. The solution was to import mongoose. It had worked well in Jamaica's plantations, so the mongoose were brought first to Hawaii Island before being introduced to the other islands to battle the rat population. A quote from the Evening Bulletin said, As soon as a cane field was planted, it seemed to be a new breeding ground for the rats, which appeared to exist by the hundreds of thousands. After the introduction of the mongoose, other plantations caught on and used it for rat control. And while the sugar plantations are gone now, the mongoose remains. Who introduced the first mongoose to Hawaii? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. is Emergency Medical Services Week, and Honolulu EMS Chief uh, Chris Sloman tells us one of his big worries was making sure training classes could continue so the city could work at filling the 20 or so paramedic and emergency technician staff vacancies. That essential program is handled at Kapilani Community College, and it did, in fact, stay open, even though most of the university was shut down two months ago as a result of the pandemic restrictions. This week honors EMS workers whose first responders you see, along with firefighters and police when you have to call 911. The risks those frontline workers take every day is at the forefront, as we you know, we recently heard about the 11 Los Angeles firefighters who were hurt while responding to an emergency blaze. EMS strong, ready today, preparing for tomorrow is the theme nationwide. We talked to Chief uh, Chris Loman about the critical staff training that is still on track. 
you know, one of our big concerns was was coming into the event with some vacancies and and having some some shortages for staffing. Uh, one of our biggest concerns was basically not having the students that were in the process of going through the um, you know the training of becoming potential future employees for us and not knowing you know how long the event could endure. So working with KCC, the the faculty at KCC ZMS program has been phenomenal, and they've kept their paramedic program functioning and open through the through the process even though the remainder of KCC and you know UH had to basically shut down right or go to all distance type stuff but they've been able to adapt and we've been able to keep the paramedic program on course and there was a few weeks that they, we had to take the EMT program off to you know address some concerns and get them to a different place in their training where they were safe to be out you know using proper PPE with our folks to do their clinical part of their training as well but We've been able to overcome those, and those functions, those those programs remain open and functional, which is good news for us because that means that uh, we'll continue to have new people to come in as we have normal attrition and try and fill those vacancies. Right, because a lot of the training is kind of hands-on too, right? Correct. As we mark EMS Week, I understand that the cases that you folks normally respond to are down? They are. At the moment, on most days, we're averaging probably about 30 to 40 percent below normal annual call volume. It's a little deceptive, though, because the calls that we're doing now take longer, right? It it takes longer to process, it takes longer to put on the PPE, and it takes longer to decontaminate after every call. So it's it's kind of been a trade-off. Even though it's less volume, there's not really a decrease in workload for the individuals. Now, we're not seeing it so much here, but we're worried about and we're watching closely, but we are starting to get anecdotal evidence from the mainland that there's places where people are avoiding calling 911 and even, you know, people having heart attacks and strokes and those types of, of circumstances. And out of fear of, of COVID-911, they're not calling 911 or visiting their emergency room. And so we're seeing spikes in death rates due to those things that probably are not you know, directly associated with COVID as far as a disease process, only because it exists. So people are maybe waiting too long to call for help, to call 911. Yeah. And it's a you know, we just need to remind people that if you're having a medical emergency, something like chest pain or shortness of breath or a stroke or if somebody's bleeding, that's why we're here. And we will take all the necessary precautions to treat you under those circumstances and get you to the appropriate facility that will also take all the appropriate you know, precautions to prevent the spread of COVID. I believe I did see Maui advertise in the newspaper, you know, just urging people saying, you know, if you have a medical emergency and you need to get to the emergency room, then you should do that and call 911. Yes. I know the department has been plagued with kind of the chronic calls. Uh, I think at the beginning of this, I believe Jim Howitt talked about, yeah, they'd gotten a call from some lady who wanted them to go pick up her prescription. Mm-hmm. Are we getting that still? In the business of 911, we get, we, we have to deal with the unknowns and, and sort of unusual circumstances on a daily basis. So um, it's not really that weird to occasion. We've been called to people's homes to because really what they needed was someone to help make a sandwich or, you know, to help tuck them into bed. A lot of, you know, most those are rare circumstances, but we still do occasionally get those. They are far, far less. We're we're seeing statistically people are waiting until things are very serious before they call 911 for the most part. And how are your crew members doing? I know the police union indicated that they had a couple of 
officers who tested positive, and, and they're recovering. But have you had any of your EMS or paramedics test positive? Uh, to date, we have not. We have not had any confirmed positive cases amongst the EMS workforce. Um, as far as how the EMS workforce is doing, it's a very challenging circumstance. Um, like I was saying earlier, the, the current working conditions of having to wear the additional PPE and the extra handling, the extra decontamination, and sanitizing and those sorts of things, they, they do pay a toll. Early on in the event, obviously, we were dealing with many more unknowns than we are now. Um, the more unknowns, the higher the anxiety, you know, the anxiety level. I think everybody can relate to that. That has calmed as we've learned more and, and put practices and things into place that were backed by, you know, science that proved to be effective and safe. And so far, you know, knock on wood, we've, we've made it to this point without, you know, a confirmed exposure amongst our workforce. But the, the danger is still there. Um, it doesn't go away just because we've had low numbers. And so we still have to have the posture of protecting all of our people on every single call. And that adds a lot of stress to the circumstance. And you've been called out to deal with, uh, I think, a number of homeless cases. Uh, and we've been fortunate in that we haven't had an outbreak in any of those camps or in the emergency shelters. But, you know, there is the concern when you do go to an area where People aren't using face coverings, and you know the sanitation isn't all that great. Yes, um, those are all concerns, and the, the, probably the biggest thing that has had an impact on that for us is there's the um, they've, HPD and some other organizations created this post location at Kehi Lagoon, and it's a transitional thing now to help get people from that are homeless into essentially what is a a monitored quarantine section, and they move through different phases and then can be pushed out and, and assigned to different shelters. And so that has helped, and I think that's probably been the biggest reasons why we haven't seen um, spikes or clusters specific to homeless encampments to, to, to this point. So we've got agencies that are talking to each other and, and trying to look after uh, those high-need areas. Yeah, especially the most vulnerable, like the homeless. And do you think this pandemic may hurt your ability to recruit new staff just because of the added risk to the job? You know, I think it's too early for that for, for us to really know that. Anecdotally, no. I think the amount of support that is, is obviously visible from the public, we haven't seen an, an, an increase or a decrease in interest. But that may be something that takes us you know, a few months or years to really know and understand. Talk about the, the, that new unit that you folks got funded for. Well, yeah, we added that unit the fiscal year before last, which was here in the, the Salt Lake area. So it's actually based here close to the airport, and it covers the whole Salt Lake area. And that's really important because it helped shift a lot of the call volume away from what was our busiest unit, which is located at Kuakini Medical Center. So that has shifted and made that call volume in that kind of Mapunapuna and Kalihi area much more manageable for us. So it's evened it out. Yeah. Given that it's EMS week, it's a, it's a good time for everyone to kind of stop and pause. And the, 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 the tragedy in L.A. and the, the whole COVID-19 response. And it's a good opportunity, I think, for people to recognize the, the dangers and the risks and the self-sacrifice that paramedics and EMTs and other first responders make on a daily basis, not just during times of challenge. That was Honolulu EMS Chief Chris Sloman talking about EMS Strong, ready today, planning for tomorrow. For anyone interested in the open EMS jobs that are available, find links to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
Our Honolulu Civil Beat reality check is their featured story about all those city employees who are on extended paid leave. Editor Chad Blair joins us on this Thursday. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story uh, from Christina Jedra about a number of workers that are under investigation. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's a it's a straight up news story. Christina, of course, covers uh, Honolulu Holly for us. We might as well labeled it uh, "It's Your Money" because uh, what this involves is accused workers, people that are under investigation, working for the city. They're presumed innocent uh, until proven otherwise, so they keep getting a paycheck. And in some cases, it's been months and even years that these people have been on and continue to be on uh, the city and county's payroll. Some of the names uh, you know well, or at least if you pay attention to what's going on in the news, that includes our prosecuting attorney, Keith Kaneshiro, well over a year now, his first deputy, uh, Chasid Sapolu, uh, and also Corporation Counsel Head Donna Leong. Corp Counsel is the, the lawyers, the attorneys uh, for City Hall. Uh, all three, in some form or another, received contact from the FBI about an ongoing federal investigation. And so what does the city council think about all this? There's, <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. I can tell you, Ikaike Anderson, the chair, isn't crazy about this happening. Uh, says in particular, thinks Keith Conoshiro really shouldn't uh, be taking money. You know, remember, Keith Conoshiro was elected to that position, so he can't just easily be removed. There have been efforts to 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 recall him or to impeach him, but he's still on the payroll. Uh, in terms of Donna Leong, she is an appointee. In this case, Mayor Caldwell's appointee. Uh, Anderson says, why don't we just fire her? That doesn't seem like a good idea to keep her on the payroll. We're talking, by the way, uh, seven uh, employees total that are on leave in one way or another linked to some sort of alleged misconduct. And Christina did the number crunching. It amounts to $820,000 a year total annual salaries. And again, let me stress, some of these people have been on the payroll while not working for well over a year or longer. Right. And it's your money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for plugging that segment again. Uh, now, um, of course, the hanging over uh, Kaneshiro and Sapolu and Leong, and, and they'll, they will have their day in court, uh, and we'll see whether they are innocent or not. It's linked to the Catherine and Louis K. Aloha case, uh, which I don't think I need to go into any detail here uh, to recap that. Uh, but there are other people um, that recently have been put on leave. That includes Guy uh, Kalakukui, right? He is the Environmental Services Director, and he has been put on leave for an undetermined amount of time. That's re related to a, a lawsuit regarding Kamehameha Schools. Right, and uh, I was intrigued because you had uh, information about three other city employees who are on leave uh, that we haven't really heard too much about. No, they are not named, but we can tell you through Christina's reporting, two of them work at the Department of Planning and Permitting, and that, and that last one that would make seven total works at the Department of Environmental Services, the same as um, Kalukakui. But we don't know uh, the nature of those cases. Um, Christina did talk to Colin Moore, uh, teaches uh, politics and policy at UH, and, and said it is concerning that taxpayers are footing the bill uh, for people that could well end up being um, guilty, being put in jail and uh, and prison. Um, in some cases, though, you have to be careful. There may be civil service laws involved. If they are civil service employees, you got to be careful about risking a lawsuit. But still, just from the surface, 
well, more than the surface. It just doesn't look right. I can tell you the comments section on this story that's up on our website. Oh, there's a whole lot of folks saying, why are we still paying these guys? But again, we have to stress they are presumed innocent until proven otherwise. Right. And I know the story doesn't really uh, deal with this, but you know, you kind of wonder with the salaries that are accruing. I think there's also like service credit at the ERS for retirement. So that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a whole nother, it's more money. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I think that's been looked at at the, at the legislative level, whether that's really fair that someone who might be convicted, like a Louis K. Aloha uh, or a Catherine K. Aloha, being able to receive uh, pension and health benefits. But we don't have time to talk about that today. But for now, it sure is enlightening uh, what we, the taxpayers of the city and county, are paying for. Yes, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jedra's full story, visit civilbeat.org. This week, during our time of isolation, we've been remembering Kalopapa and the Hansen's disease patients there. A caller let us know about some of the community's famed entertainment. Hi, this is Rosa from East Hawaii, KAL. Concerning Kalopapa and the leper community, well, there's this amazing puppet show called Kalalau, and there was one man, he was diagnosed. He fleed into the mountains and he could not be captured but later on unfortunately his family his wife and his child got the disease and they were taken to Kalaupapa so if you by any chance know that puppet show it's it's a wonderful cultural expression of uh, of that time thank you for that you know, we also heard from listeners responding to a story that we ran last week with the Honolulu Police Department and WalkWise Hawaii about pedestrian safety. Yeah, my name's Jim from the Big Island. As far as uh, reopening after the COVID crisis and pedestrian traffic, my thought was we'd make the sidewalks one way, op- opposing traffic flow, and people walk on opposite sides of the streets so we could all maintain six-foot distance and kind of merge like a freeway and then just cross the street when you have to go the other way. And that way we won't be crisscrossing and everything in front of each other. Aloha. Yes, this is Kevin O'Leary calling from Kalihi. The one thing on traffic and on the pedestrian death that you haven't covered are the, the cars, the people in the cars. You've had inattentive cell phone use of pedestrians. The killers in this town are the drivers primarily. They kill people quite often in the crosswalk. So once again, the police seem to be focusing on the pedestrians. That's not the problem here. It's part of the problem, perhaps, but the real problem are the drivers who kill the people through inattentive driving and running red lights, which they also, there's very little enforcement, and stop signs also. Thank you. Thank you for that. You may have also seen continued construction work on our streets and at job sites. Last month, we spoke with Cheryl Walthall, the head of the General Contractors Association of Hawaii, Janice from Kona, whose husband works in the industry, was not as optimistic. Via email, she said, Our experience is far different than the rosy one painted by your guest, whose interest was clearly in projecting the best image for her industry. We were disappointed that you didn't include input from those whose experience are of unchallenged or unresolved challenges in the industry, which range from noise, 
uh, casually mentioned as requiring give and take from which people uh, stuck at home cannot escape and for which there's no compromise with companies who feel it's their right to continue being loud despite neighbors' complaints to a plethora of job sites where absolutely no protections are being implemented, including importing mainland labor without 14-day quarantine. Many workers have told me they feel helpless and at risk of losing their jobs if they complain. Thank you for that. Uh, to share uh, some of your uh, thoughts, please call our Talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Marco Werman from the world. Germany is letting kids go back to school in shifts. Italy eased its lockdown but remains vigilant. South Korea got its infection rate down to nearly zero, but they're still wearing masks. As communities across the U.S. work out their plans, our team is keeping track of how the rest of the planet is moving forward. It's the world. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 1. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a controversial introduced animal. It's well discussed that the introduction didn't work because mongoose are active during the day while rats are nocturnal. But could that just be an urban legend? What's the real story? Newspaper articles decades after introduction quote plantation owners who say they saw less rat-damaged sugarcane crops. Because of its effectiveness, the practice spread from plantation to plantation. Of course, the mongoose has damaged the environment, especially the native bird population, in ways beyond prepa- uh, repair. But the good intentions started when W.H. Purvis imported the first mongoose in 1883 from India and Africa for Pacific Sugar Mill on Hawaii Island. We had no winners today. We stumped you on that question. But that was today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. In this time of distance learning, students at the University of Hawaii were able to screen a short film about Alice Augusta Ball. She was the first black female chemist to earn her master's degree at the University of Hawaii uh, you know, in the early, uh, early 1900s. She's the subject of the Ball Method, a short narrative film that debuted at the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles this year. You may remember hearing about this on Science Friday when Ira Flato interviewed film director uh, Dagmawi Abebe about his project, 
The show aired in early February. Here is a short excerpt. Alice Ball was a, an African-American woman born in 1892. She went to the University of Hawaii, which used to be called the College of Hawaii back then. How did she get focused on helping people with leprosy? Um, well, it started with her thesis, uh, her, her master's thesis, and uh, Dr. Harry Holman, who was an assistant surgeon in Kali Hospital, where they used to take care of patients with leprosy, he read her thesis, and he saw that the method that she was using on the kava plant on her thesis was could be helping could help them get uh, the injectable solution that he was looking for for the leprosy patients. So you chronicle in the book how she sort of stumbled on the answer to making the injectable solution. How how close is that to the truth? I mean, I know you have literary license and writing a <laughs> plot for a movie, but were you yeah. were you able to find out what really happened? Yes, I, I think uh, one of the important process of, for her to find it was letting the, uh, the chomuguk acid uh, stay in cold for overnight. And so that was one of the things that I could show visually in the film without getting too deep into the chemistry. Um, so that's basically what I, had, I was trying to connect. And in fact, we have, uh, to give a little pe- people a t- little taste of the film, we have a, that pivotal scene in which he has a flash of insight. Dr. Holman! We have to freeze it. Sorry. That's how we get the esters to crystallize. We've been doing it wrong the whole time. Heating it doesn't make it faster. It only degrades the acid before it has time to combine with the ethanol. If, if we can stop the ferry today, they might have a chance. I'll arrange a test for tomorrow morning, okay? Wow. And, of course, that worked, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, because I believe that leaving it in the cold was preventing the acid from degrading so that it had enough time to uh, for the acid to crystallize and be filtered. Um, and that's, that's basically how she was able to find the treat. That was director uh, Dagmawi Abebe. Uh, he was talking to uh, Science Friday host Ira Flato, uh, thanks to Sci- Science Friday producer Charles Burquist. Um, now, uh, Abebe's short film is currently making the rounds on the film festival circuit, but will be available on Amazon Prime Video in August. Now, The Ball Method, uh, the film was also screened at the University of Hawaii Hamilton Library as part of Black History Month. Alice Ball's research with the oil of the chalmuga tree as a treatment for leprosy fascinated retired UH librarian Paul Wormiger. He's working on her biography and was behind an exhibit at Hamilton Library before the closure because of COVID-19. But our current temporary isolation gives rise to this bit of Kalopapa history tied to the Chalmuga tree and Alice Augusta Ball. Here's Paul. She was probably the leading figure in making life for leprosy victims. And matter of fact, she probably was the first person in the world to give leprosy patients true hope that they could be cured. And there were, like I said, the early cases could be cured. Advanced cases, no. That had to wait for the sulfa drugs. And why is it so important for you as a librarian and a, and a, a lover of history and stories that she gets a recognition for uh, her contributions here? Well, I think it's more than that. It's just a human nature reaction. When you see an injustice, you want to try to change that. 
And that's how, when I found out that nobody knew Alice Ball, she was not in the literature at all, that nobody gave her credit, that really upset me and still bothers me to this day. So whatever recognition I can scrounge up, um, that will be paying our dues, humanity's dues, to a woman who really did so much for other people. People had known that the Shmugra tree was used to treat leprosy, you know, 2,000 and more years ago. Actually, some people believe it was even used by the Egyptians going way, way back. And again, that kind of points to the usefulness of folk medicine. There is some, there's some basis for it because if people try something and it works, it works. It has medicinal value. Yes. And of course, they didn't understand why you know, the chemical compound, but just that it helped their skin, might probably help people with early leprosy. And so it was the fact that I don't think she started out, her mission wasn't to find a cure for leprosy. It was that a physician presented her with a problem they were having in that he felt, and I think Holloman knew, that there was a value in Shimogra, but their mode of using it was wrong. It was painful, upsetting, and so he thought if they could get a injectable form of Shimogra oil. It isn't actually the oil itself, it's the components they remove from Shimogra oil. There's two acids and they are the ones that have that antibacterial uh, effect. So she was trying to fix a chemical problem. She saw it from a chemical, from a chemist's point of view. And uh, actually probably her going to Kalihi, you know, to, as part of her, her master's thesis, she saw firsthand what, how people were suffering from the disease. So I think that was probably another motivation too, than that she worked so hard to finally make that chemical discovery just by sheer grit, I guess. And in your research, you found that uh, while she discovered this ball method of using this oil, uh, that she wasn't given the proper acknowledgement you know, that her contribution to, to science and uh, what she discovered just wasn't acknowledged. Yes, it was easily overlooked, I think. Um, if we look back at the conditions then, she was female, she was young, she was African-American. All those were not traits that you associate with somebody who's found a cure. Um, and then, on top of it, there was the pressure that um, the university or the College of Hawaii was under at that time then from people demanding, pleading for, you know, samples for this. And so they just rushed ahead. Um, Dr. Dean, Arthur Dean, picked up what she had done and went with it and just, you know, went on and forgot about who had actually started it. 
Nobody bothered to go back and say, well, who made this? And not until 1922 did Holloman publish that article that brought it to light. But by then, it was just common, common known that, well, you know, Dean did this and Dean did that, and nobody really put Alice where she should have been. So what was the Ball method became the Dean method? And it wasn't by Dean himself. He never called it the Dean method. So we have to be fair to Dean. It wasn't that he robbed her. It was when he published it, as you know, when you publish something, then people want to refer to it in their work. They don't go through the long process of this is how, you know, so-and-so mixed this and this together. So they nicknamed it the Dean method. And everybody who read the, you know, the science the chemistry journals would know, of course, what that means, Arthur Dean did it. So it wasn't that it was a malicious thing, it was just how things happen. If you do something, somebody will write about you, but then they name it after you. Right. But unfairly, unfair. nobody gave uh, Alice Ball credit for what she discovered. Because nobody knew about her. You know, She did it and then disappeared. And actually physically, but also um, in people's minds because she was just, you know, she was there for a year and a half and then gone. And you have created a exhibit up on the fifth floor in her honor just to make sure that her story gets told. Yes, and I also fund, funded an Alice Ball scholarship at UH, and now it's, it's in its third year and students are benefited by it because I wanted to try to encourage more women and people of color to go into the sciences. And so we honor Alice Ball, who died in her 20s. She was the first black female chemist to obtain her degree at the University of Hawaii and her groundbreaking research on the Chalmuga tree, one of the first treatments to try and cure and treat leprosy. Retired UH Hamilton Library, Paul Wormiger plans to write Ball's biography to keep her memory alive. He says in Hawaii, February 28th has been officially declared Alice Ball Day, but laments because of leap year in the past, she hasn't been consistently given proper credit. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanikawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show devo devoted to culture and the arts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm -hmm.